Well, good morning, y'all. How you doing? Good? Welcome, welcome. If you're here from Arkansas, we're sorry about yesterday. Uh, you know, we <laughs> just want to apologize for that. Get it out of the way. Hope you guys have a good rest of the season. Uh, <laughs> but no, we're, we're glad that you're here with us. Um, remember the, the, the former, in the Ask a Former Atheist, please, I was introduced by, um, I actually went to a tent revival. I was part of that uh, out in Colorado a couple months ago. And the guy who introduced me said that they had an atheist who wanted to get up and speak some tonight. And uh, the, the word former there is really important. You know, I used to be an atheist. I'm not now. Pastor David didn't have an atheist come and speak with you today. So that's, uh, get that out of the way right now. Um, we do want to keep praying for Pastor David. He texted this morning. He's, his, he's been preaching so much that his voice is giving out. So, uh, yeah, let's just take a minute and pray for him right now. Father God, we pray for our pastors, David and Shannon, as they bring the word of God to Uganda and then on up into Ethiopia. Father, we pray that you just uh, strengthen his vocal cords supernaturally, that uh, even right now that you just give him uh, words, that you give him the physical stamina and, and Pastor Shannon, the physical stamina to proclaim your word boldly and in love, Father. We just are so thankful that you're using Living Hope Church to uh, touch the nations, to train pastors, to take the word of God, to take good materials on pastoring and leading churches uh, to the far reaches of Africa, Lord. We just trust that your will will be done in all of these things to the glory of Christ and in his name. Amen. Okay, so get out your Bibles, if you will, and turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're working through an expository series. Expository preaching means that you, you can't avoid anything. <laughs> you, you march through Scripture, and uh, you pick a book, and you preach through that book in its entirety. So this is the third lesson here in 2 Peter. If you'll stand up, I'll read to you 2 Peter 1. 16 to 21. 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21. The Apostle Peter, under the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit, writes these words. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Thank you. You can be seated. I was joking. I, 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 well, half joking. I told the first service, I said, uh, you know, it's Pastor Appreciation Day here at Living Hope. So David has this plan perfectly, you know, he has someone else like me come in and preach, 
and so you appreciate Pastor David so much when he comes back, right? Um, so yeah, but I, I'm thankful for the opportunity to, to preach uh, in front of believers. <laughs> we, we do a lot of ministry in front of unbelievers, and in general, they're not as nice as you guys. Um, so, so yeah, thank you uh, to the pastors and the leadership for this opportunity. How many of y'all have been to the Holy Lands? You, you ever visited the land of Israel? Amen. Praise God. You've had a chance to go. Uh, if, if you ever get a chance, let me encourage you to, to avail yourself of that opportunity. It's money well spent. It really is. Take a trip to the Holy Lands and, and see some of these sites. It brings the Bible, uh, not just the New Testament, but both Old and New Testament to life, to, to tour around and, and see these places that you read about in Scripture. And one of the things you'll be able to do is visit the old city of Jerusalem. Um, you know, Jerusalem today is a huge city. The old town, the old city of Jerusalem is just a tiny part of that. Uh, one of the things you'll be able to do is take a tour where you essentially retrace uh, the last night of Jesus' life prior to his crucifixion, uh, starting with the, the upper room, the Passover meal, that Jesus observed with the twelve. Uh, of course, Judas Iscariot leaves, right, to go and betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Uh, Jesus and the other 11 make their way to a garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane was an olive press. It's where they crushed olives, right? The olives were crushed, and then the oil was used. So Jesus goes there, and he's crushed under the, uh, under the wrath of God. The, the, what he's going to bear on the cross starts weighing down on him so heavily that he begins to profusely sweat drops of blood. This is the Son of God, right, being crushed for sinners like you and me. It tells us in Isaiah 53, it pleased Yahweh, it pleased the Lord to crush him. So Jesus goes to Gethsemane, he starts crying out to God, and then Judas returns with the temple guards. Jesus is arrested, he's seized, and he's taken uh, across the Kidron Valley up the hill to the palace of Caiaphas. Joseph Caiaphas was the high priest at the time. And so Jesus first appears before Caiaphas, and of course he's accused of blasphemy. And the Scripture tells us that Peter, it's going to be our focus today, Peter followed Jesus from a distance. Bad advice. <laughs> Don't follow Jesus from a distance. You're setting yourself up for some problems. Follow Jesus closely. But Peter follows Jesus from a distance, and he makes his way into the courtyard there of the just outside of the palace of Caiaphas. It's a chilly night. It is nighttime. Um, they started a bonfire, so people were gathering around the fire to keep themselves warm. And by the light of the fire, a servant girl there recognizes Peter, and she says, this man, this man was also with Jesus. Of course, Peter denies Christ. A little while later, a second accusation comes. He too, he too was with Jesus. Nope, not me. Wrong guy. And then about an hour later, Scripture says that a third uh, charge comes. He too was with him for, you can even tell because he's a Galilean, you can tell by the way he 
talks that he was with Jesus. And Scripture tells us that at this point, uh, Simon Peter begins to swear, and he begins to curse, and he proclaims, I'm assuming very loudly, I do not know the man, referring to Jesus. No idea who this guy is, the person he just spent the last three years of his life with day and night. And immediately what happens? Yeah, cock-a-doodle-doo. Well, the, the Roman Catholics have built a, they've erected a church there at the site of the former palace of the high priest Caiaphas. It's a beautiful church. It's called the Church of St. Peter in Gallicantu. I think I'm saying that right. <laughs> it's a Latin word, Gallicantu. You probably have never heard of that word Gallicantu before this morning, right? Well, it's what's known as an onomatopoeia. You guys remember your onomatopoeias from like middle school, English class? I don't know when they teach you that. Maybe grade school. But an onomatopoeia is a word that sounds like what it means. Commonly used with animals, right? Like bees buzz. So that word buzz, which is my nickname, by the way. You got to call me rich. Uh, but the buzz is, <laughs> is an onomatopoeia. That's what it sounds like, right? Um, pigs oink, or they squeal sometimes like yesterday. Um, <laughs> you Georgia fans appreciate that, right? Hey, my team's West Virginia. They lost. I got to whatever. Um, horses, nay. Well, these sounds sort of sound like, you know, what they mean, the, the sound of the animal. Well, roosters, they galley can't do. <laughs> they cock-a-doodle-doo. And uh, in, in their, I don't know why, in their great appreciation for who they believe was their first pope, the Roman Catholics actually named the church, the Church of St. Peter, Cock-a-doodle-doo, right? Memorializing his, his, probably his biggest blunder, right, of his entire career, his uh, three-time denial of Jesus Christ. And so you can visit that church building, and you can even see on the top there, at the very crest, they have a cross, and on top of the cross, you have this golden rooster, right? To, uh, I don't know how Peter feels about that. I guess we'll ask him when we get to heaven, you know, like, they, they yeah, you're, you, I, I wouldn't want that, my greatest failure, and they put a big symbol of it on top of a church somewhere, but uh, that was Peter. And it's so fitting for Peter. I would just say this, I am so glad, I rejo I'm thankful that through the sovereignty, the omniscience of the Holy Spirit, that we have a character like Simon Peter in the New Testament, aren't you guys? I mean, is P Peter encouraged anybody else out here? Like, like these, he steps out of the boat, doesn't he? He gets out. He starts walking on water, and he doubts, and he sinks, you know. And then the, Jesus takes the disciples to Caesarea Philippi, all this area renowned with pagan influence. He asks them, who do men say that I am? Peter steps up. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the prophesied one. You're the one who was to come. You're the son of the living God. And, and uh, Jesus, well, blessed are you. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. And I say to you, you are Peter. Um, you're Simon, son of John. Uh, you're Peter. And upon this rock, right, Jesus is making a play on words. Basically, Peter means rocky. That's what we might call him today, like Rocky Balboa, right? If you guys are old enough to remember him. Um, but 
I say to you, you're rocky, and upon this rock, this rock of the confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. This is a statement of offense, okay? Jesus is saying, um, the devil, the pagans, secular influence is not going to ever be able to stop the forward march of the church of God. The gates of hell will never prevail against Christ and His church. Amen? So we have that assurance today. But wow, Peter, good job. You know, kudos. <laughs> and then you keep reading. And, you know, and five or six verses later there in Matthew 16, Jesus explains to Peter and the others what this means, how this is going to happen. And he says the Son of Man is going to be arrested. He's going to be delivered over to evil men. He's going to be put to death. Peter's like, whoa, <laughs> no, no, that Lord, he pulls him aside. And he start, the Scripture says he starts to rebuke Jesus. And he says, Lord, this is not going to happen to you. And what's Jesus say? Now, now, Peter. Now, he says, get thee behind me, Satan, for you do not desire the things of God, but the things of man. Peter wanted, like pretty much all of them, they were looking for the Messiah as the one who was going to drive out the Romans, military leader, military general. They saw this power, this anointing, these prophecies about the one who was going to come and free them from their obligations, their subservient sta uh, status to the Roman Empire. And Jesus was not so narrowly focused. <laughs> His focus wasn't this world. It was the eternal kingdom of God. And, of course, part of that was His crushing at Calvary. And so he, you go in a few verses from this praise of Peter to this strong rebuke, this mighty rebuke, get behind me, Satan. And this is the Peter that I love in Scripture because I can relate to this guy so much. Um, so Peter, back to Peter. Night of Jesus' betrayal, Jesus' arrest. He goes to the courtyard. He denies Jesus three times. The Scripture says he goes out and weeps bitterly. So Peter is very upset about this. He's grieving but he's also feeling a strong amount of shame, right? Where is Peter 50 days later? He's still in Jerusalem. Day of Pentecost, 120 gathered. The Holy Spirit descends in tongues of fire, and they start preaching and proclaiming the wonders of God in all of these various tongues of the nations that are assembled there. And Peter is the one who gets up there in Jerusalem in front of the same people who had put Jesus to death. Peter's not hiding now. He's not afraid, right? He's not cowering. He's not denying Christ. He's preaching Christ. And he's preaching Christ in front of the same people that had just had Jesus arrested and put him to death. Amen? Why? What changed Peter? Y'all know <laughs> that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is what changed Peter. And Jesus triumphed over death, hell, and the grave. 
and it radically and permanently transforms the life of this young disciple who became such an important apostle there in the first century. Fifty days later, Peter himself preaches this. It's recorded in Acts chapter 2 in front of the same people who were crying, crucify, crucify, just a few weeks earlier. Peter stands in front of them and has this to say. He says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. I want to focus on that word witness this morning. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain, we can know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Paul says something very similar at the Areopagus. It's recorded in Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. You know, he observes the pagan influence, and he stands up there and proclaims the true and the living God. And he says, God used to overlook ignorance of mankind, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He says, for he's fixed a day in which he'll judge the world in righteousness through the man that he has appointed. And of this, God has furnished proof. God has furnished proof by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is proof that Christianity is true. Now, we need to hear this today, especially our young people, but all of us, more than ever, because how often have you heard something like, you know, well, I guess if that works for you, right, follow Jesus, Um, you know, you do you, right, if that's your thing, then, hey, knock yourself out, Um, or people will say maybe they're more skeptical, and they're like, oh, come on, there are literally hundreds, if not thousands of religions, different gods, different deities, different demigods that humanity has believed in, what makes yours different? You know, you just picked, you're just a Christian because your parents dragged you to church growing up. No, yeah, no, thank you. Not at all. We're Christians because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Hallelujah. That, That is the proof, that is the proof that God has provided that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and there's no way to the Father except through Him. Anybody can claim anything. You know, Jesus went around saying, if you've seen me, you've seen God. I and the Father are one. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. I'm the light of the world. I'm the resurrection and the life. Okay, sounds good. Now prove it, and he did. (laughs) He did it by laying down his life and then raising it up again, just as he had prophesied on the third day. The resurrection is proof that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So over a 40-day period on at least 10, probably more, at least 10 different occasions, Jesus appears alive to over 500 people. And I want to talk about just one of these appearances, John 21, 15 to 19. The Gospel of John there at the very end, John 21, 15 to 19. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Scripture says, I love this, right? Um, Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? What's echoing in Peter's head? The rooster crow, the the galley cantu, he's remembering his denial 
three denials. Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you, carry you to where you do not want to go. And this Jesus said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God, crucifixion, crucified upside down. And after saying these things, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. It didn't occur to me until I reread this in preparation for today. These were the same words. Jesus says, follow me. Three years before, he's walking along the Sea of Galilee, along the shoreline. There's these fishermen there. Hey, Peter, you're a fisherman. Come follow me. I'll make you a fisher of man, right? And Peter did for three years. All the highs, all the lows. Jesus dies. He's raised from the dead. Just before he returns to his Father in heaven, he tells Peter, he says, he repeats it, follow me. That simple little command, follow me and feed my sheep. Follow me and feed my lambs. Feed Christ's lambs. And so, I want to talk today just about three points here from 2 Peter chapter 1. Three reminders that Peter gives as he's about to die It says in verse 14 that Christ had made it plain to him. Peter says, Christ has made it plain to me that I'm about to die. I'm about to be martyred for my faith and testimony in Jesus. And so, I want to remind you, Christians, I don't have a new teaching for you. I don't have something new, something different, but this is really important. I'm about to die. These are the most important things I can think of even after I'm going. You can keep coming back to these and they'll strengthen you, they'll encourage you, they'll give you hope. And Peter says, I, I, this, is, this is top priority. This is top priority, okay? So there's nothing new, there's no new message. But I need to reiterate some essentials, some fundamentals, some non-negotiable aspects of the gospel. So number one on your outline, Peter reminds us, that through Jesus Christ, God did it all. Verse 3, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things. God has done it all. This is the message of the gospel, the pure, unadulterated New Testament gospel. God did it all. You could summarize it in those four words. There are some important details, for sure, but this is the message of the gospel. It's complete in Christ. When Christ dies on the cross, he, he cries out, it is finished. You know, when I was a child and I came across that story, I thought Jesus was just saying, my life is finished. That's not it at all. He's saying that the translation, it was a term of mercenary, paid in full to telestay. It is finished. The full payment for the sins of every man and woman, boy and girl, who has ever been saved, ever will be saved. The debt was paid in full when Christ was crushed on the cross and before He died. God did it all. Why is that so important? Because it reminds us that all we do is just say, yes, Lord, right? That's our role, okay? Yes, Lord, for by grace you are saved through faith. That's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. 
Even the faith for salvation, you had to receive that from God. That was a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast, right? So it's God did it all. Peter's reminding the church of this. Don't wax legalistic. Don't get sucked into the false teaching of the Judaizers who are saying, you know, you got to still observe the law of Moses. Christ did his part, but you got to do your part. No, God did it all. The work was finished in Christ, and this is what distinguishes biblical Christianity from any other religion that has ever been proposed. All of the other religions say what? Work, work, work. You do the work. You do this. You do that. Stop doing this. Stop doing that. And then maybe God will weigh out your good deeds and your bad deeds on the day of judgment, and He'll let you into paradise. No. <laughs> well, none of us would ever get in, okay? We would all go to hell right? If that's the way it was, it's finished in Christ. Christ paid it all. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe, right? So this is, yeah, hallelujah. This is the first message that Peter wants to reiterate to these Christians. Why did God do it all? Because God had to do it all. And the result of that, when you really grasp that, when you really start getting that, right? It takes a while for some of us. I know it did for me. One of the reasons I became an atheist was because I grew up in very legalistic Christianity. But when you really get this, man, it frees you up. It sets you free. John 6, 38. Well, let me say this. If God did it, then it's done. You can have assurance, right? You don't have to fret. You don't have to sit around worrying, is God going to let me into heaven? Did I do good enough this week? Did I curse? You know, maybe I disqualified myself when that person cut me off in traffic. No. If Christ did it, it's done. You can have assurance. John 6, 38, Jesus says this. He says, this is the will of him who sent me. Well, who sent him? God. This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose none. I should lose none of those that he has given me but raise them up on the last day. The will of God, if you're in Christ today, is that Christ will not lose you. That's what God said. That's what Christ reaffirms. It's not going to happen. He's not going to lose you. I shall lose none of those that He has given me, but raise them up on the last day. John 6, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And he says, I will. I will raise him up. It's a promise of Christ. I will raise him up on the last day. John 10, 26, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. I have that intimacy with them. They follow me. There's the follow me again. I give them present tense, not future, not pie in the sky by and by. I give to them eternal life, right? If you're in Christ today, God has given you already eternal life. When your physical body dies, it continues, right? One day you get a resurrection body. I give them eternal life, and Jesus says, they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Who's stronger than Jesus? If he says no one's going to snatch you out of his hand, how would you interpret that? You need to go get a doctorate of divinity degree to understand what that means. You, you ain't coming out. You know? <laughs> yeah, amen. So this is the first reminder of Peter. God does it all in Christ. God has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. 
So number two, number two on the outline, each believer should confirm his or her calling and election. Now here we are. There's this tension that always happens when you talk about salvation, fully completed by God. He does it all. Well, the other side of that is if you've been born again, guess what? There are going to be some real changes in your life. Those things don't save you, but they are the fruit of genuine salvation. Do you all see the difference? Because that's real important. You're not, nobody's ever saved by good works. Isaiah 64 tells us our best deeds. The best 30 seconds of your life that you've ever lived, right? I don't know what that looks like for you, but the very best, the most noble, the most loving 30 seconds of your life that you've ever lived, how, how, what does that look like next to the righteousness of Jesus Christ? What's, what's Isaiah tell us? Filthy rags, menstrual cloths, okay? That's literally what that word means. It's unclean. It's, it's, it's unclean, unclean, unclean. The best, not the worst, the, the best 30 seconds of your life next to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so, again, this is why God has to do it all. But Peter tells us to confirm our calling and election. In other words, make sure that you're a sheep and not a goat, <laughs> right? Make sure that you're wheat and not tares. Our friend Bridget, who helps us lead Ratio Christi, brought in some tares that are growing around campus of UGA and if, and to show us what they look like. And if you look at a tear, it look, just looks just like a head of wheat. You can't tell the, dis, dis, the difference from far away, right? Well, what's Jesus telling us that? There's a lot of people who, man, they, on the external, on the outside, just like the Pharisees, they look like the real deal. And guess what? They're not, and they're going to be gathered together, Jesus said, on the day of judgment, gathered together and burned up, right? Make sure you're a sheep and not a goat, that you're a weed and not a tare. It's very scriptural. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5 says, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. That verse would make no sense if, unless we were supposed to take that seriously and say, what's the fruit of my life? Is there evidence that I've been truly born again? Not talking about sinless perfection, not talking about not blowing it. No, we're talking about what's the direction of your life. When you fall down, do you get up? Repentance is not a one-time thing. You know what the evidence is that you've truly repented in, a, in the biblical sense? You keep repenting every day for the rest of your life. Repentance is not a one and done. You know, it's not, I prayed the prayer, therefore I got fire insurance, and if anybody, no. The fruit of that is you keep repenting. You keep changing your mind. You keep conforming your mind to the Word of God. That's biblical repentance. John 15, 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So there's the fruit of spiritual reproduction, either leading people to Christ or discipling them in Christ. We should see that kind of fruit in the lives of believers. Then there's the fruit of the Spirit. You guys are familiar with this from Galatians chapter 5. But, you know, Paul is setting up a contrast there. He's con contrasting the fruit of the flesh, the works of the flesh, versus the fruit of the Spirit. Let me read this to you. Galatians 5, starting in verse 19. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, things like fornication, watching pornography, homosexuality, those types of things 
fruit of the flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, and divisions, envy, drunkenness, right, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Paul has a very stern warning here. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, if you live that kind of lifestyle, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. People don't like that today. That's what the Scripture says. And over against that, he makes that comparison. He says, that's the works of the flesh. That's the fruit of the flesh. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What are you seeing in your life? Fruits of the Spirit, are they abounding? Not perfectly, but are those predominating? And what about the works of the flesh? There needs to be a really obvious change when you start following Jesus. Otherwise, you need to go back and take an inventory. Okay, so number one, God did it all. Number two, confirm your calling and election. Number three, on the outline, remember the source of the gospel. Remember the source. Actually, three sources. He gives, he gives us three sources in verses 16 to 21. Okay, verse 16, he says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, Jesus. What's he saying? The gospel of Jesus Christ is not just my truth. It's not just Peter's truth. It's not just Mary's truth. It's not just Michelle's truth, okay? It's not just Pastor Jimmy's truth. It's not just what works for them, okay? It's capital T truth. It's what Francis Schaeffer referred to as true truth. It really happened. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. Jesus Christ is real. He really factually, historically rose from the dead. It's not a myth. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a legend. It's not once upon a time in a land of Nod, right? It's not how the Gospels are written. It really happened. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Amen. Yeah, rejoice in that. Rejoice in that. So in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the gospel has been signed, sealed, and delivered. You can take it to the bank. <laughs> and so Peter entreats these persecuted believers. He entreats them and says, he says, don't let, don't ever, don't ever, young people, don't, don't ever let anyone like an atheist professor, right, convince you otherwise, <laughs> okay? Don't, don't let that happen. All right. So, here are the three witnesses. Let's go through those real quick. I call them the perfect trifecta that Peter calls forth. And I believe he structures these in the order of increasing importance. As, as important as eyewitnesses are, that's number one, um, the eyewitness testimonies of the apostles. Not just them, there were also 500 plus other people that had seen the risen Jesus. History does not report a single instance ever of any eyewitness of Jesus, no matter what the consequences were, ever denying that they had seen the risen Lord. Not one time. You know, people will, will die for a lie. It happens all the time. You know, I, I, I call to mind, there's lots of examples of this, 
the radical Islamics, um, Muslims on 9-11, you know, these were extremists, obviously. But what did they do? They believed in paradise. They believe if you die in jihad, you're guaranteed to go to paradise, right? And so what did they do? That motivated them to hijack the planes, crash the planes into the Twin Towers and into the Pentagon. Um, do you think they believe in Islam? Clearly, clearly they believe that was true. Otherwise, they were the dumbest people ever, right? Clearly, they believed that was true, but they were wrong. Um, well, could we say that about the, the apostles? The answer is no, <laughs> absolutely not. This is an apples and oranges comparison if ever there was one. Because the apostles are the ones going into all the world and proclaiming Jesus as the resurrected Lord. And guess what? This isn't something, some, something someone told me. I saw it with my own eyes. So if it was a fabricated story, they knew it was a lie because they were the ones who made it up. People will die for a lie believing it was true, but they won't die for a lie knowing it's a lie because they're the one who made up the lie. That doesn't happen. You don't see that, okay? And this is exactly how the church of Christ got started. The eyewitness testimony, Peter goes back into Jerusalem. He declares that he and these others were witnesses of the resurrected Jesus. 31, 32 years later, he repeats the end of his life, the end of his ministry on earth. He says, he repeats the same thing. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So number one, the eyewitness testimony of Peter, the Twelve, and others. Number two, the witness of the audible voice of God the Father on the Mount of Transfiguration. Verses 17 and 18, for when he, Christ, received glory and honor from God the Father, the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, capitalized, referring to the Father, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He says, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mount. You can read about that in Matthew 17, by the way, if you're interested, but you know the story. Jesus takes the inner posse, right? Peter, James, and John goes up the mountain of transfiguration, called the mountain of transfiguration, because Jesus, for a short period of time, sheds his earthly appearance, and the full glory of God, that is who Jesus is, is apparent to these apostles. It says his, Jesus' face shine like the sun. And, of course, they freak out. I mean, I would too. And they, their faces hit the ground um, in the voice of God. God appears, not like in the Old Testament with Moses, not the dark cloud, but a cloud of light. And he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Well, who else was there? Elijah appeared, representing all of the prophecies of the Old Testament. Moses, the lawgiver, was there. Um, they see Jesus in all of his glory. They hit their faces in fear. And then Jesus comes over and he says, don't be afraid. When they lift up their eyes, Scripture says, they see no one but Jesus alone. Have you ever thought about the significance of that? Well, what is the Holy Spirit telling us there? You know, for 1,350 years, we've had the law and the prophecies, the Tanakh, the Torah, okay, what they referred to as the law and the prophets. You had Moses, you had the Elijahs and Elijah himself. 
And now, what's it all about? They lifted up their eyes and they saw only Jesus. It's just Jesus there with them. Doesn't mean that the law is not important. It's the opposite of that. The law was fulfilled in Christ. It's not that the prophecies weren't important. They were, but all of the messianic prophecies about the one who would come were fulfilled in Christ. So they saw no one but Christ alone. Peter points to this and says, what a powerful witness, the voice of God that's verifying the messenger Jesus of Nazareth. And finally here, number three, the witness of the Holy Scriptures. The witness of the Holy Scriptures. Peter writes here in 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. More fully confirmed than what? Well, the only thing that really makes sense to me, if I'm understanding it correctly in the context, Peter's saying that this witness of fulfilled prophecies of Scripture, this witness of Scripture, is even more important, more significant than my own experience of seeing Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's how important Scripture is, okay? And so he, he goes on to say, he goes on to say that no prophecy of Scripture has its origin in the human will. He says, but men of God, how did we get the Scripture? Men of God were carried along by the Holy Spirit, right? That's how we got Scripture. That's how we got the 66 books of the Bible. They're not the will of man. They're just not the opinions of people. They're the very words of God. The Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy 3.16, says, All Scripture is theo, God, neustos, breathed. Scripture is breathed out by God. It's not subjective human opinion, okay? It's the very Word of God. It's inspired, breathed in. It's also breathed out. It's expired by God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And P Peter is hitting on very much the same theme here. Nothing in Scripture is subjective. Nothing is merely human opinion. Nothing in Scripture is subject to error because the supreme author of Scripture is all-knowing and all-powerful. And so the Greek word that he uses, thero, P-H-E-R-O, I don't know Greek, I looked it up online, you can do that too nowadays, great tools. But that word phero means to carry along, to guide along. So how do we get Scripture? Men of God were pharaohed by the Holy Spirit. Have you ever taken a child's hand and led the child across a busy intersection? Y'all have done that before at some point, I'm assuming. Well, you pharo the kid across the intersection. We got to get from here to there. There's the goal. Can't let this kid just go off by himself. Who knows where he'll end up, right? It could be very dangerous. No, I've got to fear him. I've got to carry him along. The child is walking. He's using his own legs. He's ambulating. He's moving on his own power, but it's the hand of the parent that's guiding him safely to just the right destination. And this is the image of how we get the words of God in the Bible, in the Scripture, and why we can absolutely trust those. So Peter's, Peter's reminders, okay? Number one, um, God did it all. Number two, make sure that your calling and your confirmation are established. 
Number three, you can trust the source. You can trust the eyewitnesses. You can trust something that's verified by the voice of God. Number three, um, the message of the Scripture, tried and true from Genesis through Revelation. Okay, so this is what Peter reminds these persecuted first century Christians of as they are about, many of them, just like him, are about to pay the, the ultimate price for their faith. Okay, let me pray for us, and then Pastor Jimmy's going to come back up. Father God, we just rejoice in your word today. Thank you so much that you've given us your perfect word. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to, to walk around in darkness. We can have the light of life. The, the morning star is rising in our hearts since Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, that you've given us your perfect word. You've put your Holy Spirit in us to guide us. You fero us not just with your written word, but with the very spirit that lives inside of us, God. We rejoice in that today. We pray, Father, that you guide us into all truth for the glory of the gospel and for the glory of Jesus Christ. In his name, amen.